The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening. Hello. Can the volume be just a tiny bit louder? Because I feel I'm stressed or I feel like I'm making my volume a little bit better and I'm just saying words so that the, the volume... Oh, there we go. Thank you. Thank you. Otherwise, I feel like at the end I'm really straining. So thank you, Sveta. So welcome, welcome. So tonight I'd like to talk about this phenomenon that happens sometimes around the end of January or February or March, somewhere in there, where we have maybe these ideas that we're going to begin a meditation practice. with. Uh, we have a lot of enthusiasm. We're going to sit more, sit longer. Those of you who are here right, um, already have a practice, but sometimes we might have this idea that... Well, we have this great resolve and we're going to meditate every day or we're going to have compassion for all beings all the time or we're going to follow the precepts exactly and never tell a white lie again or you know, all these types of things. It's not uncommon at the beginning of the year or the end of the holiday season to have these ideas. I think it's pretty common, in fact. But then something happens. And we lose steam. We lose kind of the momentum or the motivation. And, and then what we earlier had been so committed to, and yes, this is what we're going to do, then it just turns into a chore. And something that we don't really want to do. And we find ourselves feeling like, I'm too tired. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get up early. I'm not going to drive to IMC. I'm not going to stay up late. Or, it's too hard. Everybody else seems like they can do it, but I don't know. I need to find something easier for me. Or I don't know. There's like this untold number of little expressions that we can have for ourselves or that we can be telling ourselves of why we're not getting to the cushion and maybe we completely abandon this whole idea and kind of gets put on the in the pile of other things that we thought we would do but hadn't quite got around to or or maybe we spend some time kind of beating ourselves up there's this quiet little voice saying well you said you were going to sit longer or sit every day and you're not and it's just like that other thing you were going to eat well exercise more you know all these things that we say we often do. So I'd like to kind of describe this using this word of resistance. Like there's some resistance to, maybe I'll say specifically like getting to the cushion. Cushion being some meditation practice. So this resistance or maybe there's a way in which we, sometimes I like this word, I feel like I'm in a tussle with myself, this little, you know, little wrestling match, kind of, there's a part that's, come on, Diana. And they're probably like, no, I don't want to. (laughs) 
I think uh, it's not so unique to me, but I think this is part of the human experience. But there's a way in which there can be resistance to even just get into the cushion, or if that is not something that's a problem, maybe it's already a habit to sit regularly. This idea of resistance can come up, or even this idea of a tussle or a struggle can come up, even if we are on the cushion and we don't want what's happening to be happening, and we're struggling or pushing it away or resisting it. So resistance shows up in all kinds of different ways, even for us to not get to the cushion, but if we are there, to not be with what's happening. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about resistance is just a natural part of practice and how to just work with it in a way that doesn't ask us to no longer be resistant. It's not asking us to be somebody that we're not or to completely, maybe I'll word it this way, the practice meets us where we are. And if we're filled with resistance, then that's how it is. But it's a natural that the mind, I'll say this, rebels when we're trying to train it. When we're trying to, you know, uh, trying to keep on coming back to the present moment or the sensations of breathing. It's natural that sometimes when we're meditating and we notice that um, we're lost in thought and there might be this sense of, oh yeah, I'm supposed to get back to the sensations of breathing or whatever the anchor is. But then there's this other idea of like, no, I want to keep on thinking this. This is interesting or I'm going to solve this problem finally, or this is entertaining, or something like this. Right? Our minds are used to kind of wanting to be distracted and entertained, and it's going to, there's going to be some resistance to training. I think this is true not only for humans, but for all creatures. When we want to train them to do something. But Part of the function of this practice of the coming back to the present moment, or if you're doing loving-kindness practice, to keep with the loving-kindness, or if you have a chanting practice, or we we don't do a lot of chanting here, but if, if that is part of your practice, part of all of these practices is to help us learn something about ourselves. Because how else would we notice the resistance? Things don't show up only in meditation, right? They're a part of our experience. So this resistance is showing up in our daily life, but maybe we're just not noticing it because we're distracting ourselves or going on and doing the next thing or um, providing a justification or rationale why we need to stop doing that and start doing something else or something like this. But part of the function of this practice of like, okay, just keep on coming back, whether it's the breath or whatever practice it is, loving kindness or chanting, whatever it might be, is to notice resistance and to notice how it feels, to get familiar with it. And 
as best we can to stay with it, to stay with the practice. And if we didn't have this, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, but also if we weren't trying to like bring our breath back to the sensations of breathing, then how else might we realize that we have these attitudes in the mind, these maybe these quiet attitudes that aren't so obvious that our, our resistance is causing harm to ourselves or maybe causing harm to others in a subtle way that maybe we wouldn't even notice. I'll say for me that, um, I mean, if you look at me, right, I'm kind of like conservatively dressed and I like appear as a conservative person. And for the most part I am, like if you think of my life story, right, it's pretty conservative for the most part. But I didn't realize, Alison and I started to realize, oh, I have this rebellious streak. I don't like it when somebody tells me what to do. And I just really hadn't noticed that so much until I started to sit and I realized, you know, okay, now bring the mind back. And there was always this, no, I don't want to, (laughs) kind of attitude that would flare up. And then I started to notice, oh, yeah, that's... um, I can see how the profession that I chose was one where I could have a lot of autonomy, where people don't tell me what to do. You know, I was trained as a scientist. Scientist is all about questioning authority, right? You don't just go with the uh, received wisdom, but you would discover things that are new. So there might be something to learn, to discover about yourself, just to recognize what role resistance has for you, not only in your practice, but in your life. So what do we do when resistance um, arises? I'm going to offer a few things that we can do. And one is, maybe without, you know, let's say we have this resistance, we don't want to go meditate. Okay. So we're not going to meditate. What if we just investigate right there? What is it? Why don't I want to go sit? Which is probably exactly what you don't want to do. But I want to offer this as a a reflection. Because if there's some resistance, that means that there's really just one thing, usually, I would say. And this one thing is that there's something in our experience that we aren't accepting, or there's something that we don't want to look at, or there's something that we're trying to push away or ignore or not be with in whatever way we can do that. Because if we were kind of like just letting, accepting things or being with how things were, then we would just go sit. And that would just be the next thing that was arising. But there's a way in which not being with, not accepting what's happening is fueling the resistance, it's showing up as resistance. So instead of resisting this resistance or struggling with the struggle or getting all tangled up, there's a way that we can just ask the question. Just ask the question. It's the activity of asking that is the step forward, not finding the answer, but asking the question. 
And so what question is this? What is happening right now that I'm not open to? What is, what is happening right now that, or what do I imagine will be happening that I don't want to open to? And maybe just feel into that without the idea that you have to find an answer. And that right there is such a big part of practice just to have that activity of investigating. Investigation is the second factor of awakening. It's a real, it's an integral part of practice. So, of course, mindfulness, meditation has a role, but so does investigation. But we have to be careful. When I'm using this word investigation, this is not an exploration of why. Why am I resisting? It's because it reminds me of that thing that happened when I was eight years old and then my brother did this and I really should have done that. You know, that's not what we're doing here. It's just having this question of what would happen that I don't want to open to? Or what is happening right now that I don't want to open to? And maybe something bubbles up Maybe something doesn't. But asking the question is a way of being here and now in the present moment. And that's the practice. So in some kind of way you tricked yourself into practicing. You're not on the cushion necessarily, but you know, so much of practice is not on the cushion. So it can be a trap if we think that it's, you know, all or nothing, we have to be on the cushion or not. So once we become maybe aware of like, oh yeah, there's this difficult emotion or I feel embarrassed or ashamed that I didn't do that thing I was supposed to do. I was late with that. I didn't send that email to that person or I keep on rehashing this painful conversation I had or rehearsing a difficult conversation I need to have. But as soon as we become aware of that, then our relationship to it shifts. And so much about this practice is about just becoming aware of and shifting our relationship to what's happening. Because all of us know we don't get to control what's happening, even though we would like, of course. But instead, just to maybe get in, shift our relationship to kind of uh, not looking at it, to like, oh, yeah. That's what I don't want. And maybe maybe it ends there, but maybe also there can be some kind-hearted adjustments. Some kind-hearted adjustments. So what's a kind-hearted adjustment? Maybe it's to recognize the difficulty And recognize the humanity of that experience. Like learning to do something new is never easy, never straightforward. If, it, if this is a beginning of a meditation practice, it takes time. It isn't a linear experience that, you know, just get better, 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 nonstop. Of course not. In the same way, if you ever learn to play a musical instrument, learn to swim, learn to 
play tennis, learn to knit, all these things, right? It's, it takes time and not every, and there's mistakes that get made and put it down and maybe pick it up again. So it's the same as all other experiences. But also recognizing that being present for uncomfortableness is not easy. And if we're anticipating that there's going to be some uncomfortableness, or even right now in the moment when we think like, oh, it's time for me to go meditate, but I, I feel lousy. It's hard. It's hard to be with uncomfortableness. So maybe this one of these kind-hearted adjustments is to recognize the humanity. All humans have this experience. It's not easy to learn something new, to change a habit. And it's difficult to be with uncomfortableness. And there's a way in which that might soften a little bit some of the inner critic that might be that's associated when we're not have when we're not getting to the cushion when we have this resistance i'll talk a little bit more about the inner critic in a moment but if all of this were easy then just think there wouldn't be so many self-help books, there wouldn't be New Year's resolutions, how many podcasts are about, you know, getting better or doing something like this, right? There's this whole kind of like societal push, right? Okay, we need to do something better. So just recognize that this is part of the human experience. And maybe that's a way in which we can have a little bit of compassion for ourselves, for others, everybody else who's trying to make a change, do something different. When there's a sense of like, oh, I I really should be meditating, or if you are meditating, there's this resistance like, mm-mm, I, like, I don't want to do that. Like if the mind is like, keeps on bouncing off of the, object of the breath and is off in uh, fantasies or planning or whatever it is. Another kind of inquiry to, can be a real support for this is just to notice the sense of self that's present. And what I mean by that is usually when we have this sense of like, I should be doing something, that sense of I should, that's often accompanied with a strong sense of me here and the whole rest of the world there. It's a little bit of me versus the world. It's this kind of a subtle feeling, but it really has this sense of me versus the world, or if it's not quite like that, it's the feeling of, It's up to me. I have to make it happen. If I don't do it, it's not going to happen. And so there's, I don't want to, there's a way in which that's true and not true. And if we get really stuck in the sense of it's all up to me and it's me against the world, then that's a place that's really tight and constricting and, there's 
not a, there's not a lot of freedom there. There's not a lot of ease there. Instead, it's a real sense of tightness and sometimes it can just feel despair comes from this kind of place and this um, isolation and shame and all these kinds of things are associated when we start to get this really constricted, I should do this. So to kind of like make this point, I'd like to contrast this, when we have this feeling like I should be meditating more, to contrast it when you're doing something that you really enjoy, one of your favorite hobbies, cooking, being at the kitchen. Sometimes I kind of like to cook. This is kind of a, I don't know if other people have this as well. Maybe I'll use the example of, for some of you know that at IRC, at the retreat center, the teachers make the breakfast. And I do not have experience cooking for 50 people, right? So so for me, when it's my turn to uh, make the breakfast, you know, there's very clear uh, instructions. But, you know, there's just a lot of stuff to do and... And while I'm doing it, there's this kind of like a focus, like, okay, this, but oh, wait, okay, that has to be done so that this gets done in time, but then take care of this. And, you know, the coffee, you have to make sure the coffee and the butter has to be a little bit melted and the peanut butter, don't forget the peanut butter, you know, like all this kind of stuff. But um, there's a way in which I kind of love it. There's this, uh, you know, just making things happen in a sense that uh, it's also it's like an act of generosity. It makes me happy to think that I'll be uh, serving others, you know, that what I'm doing will benefit and support others. And so there's a kind of like a delight in it. So maybe there's something like this for you. If it's not cooking, maybe hiking, being out with nature and being amongst the trees, the redwood trees. For me, I would say especially the redwood trees or knitting, drawing, whatever it is, notice or remember, bring to mind how you feel when you're doing those things versus how you feel when you have the sense of, I should meditate more. When we're doing these pleasurable things, these, uh, these hobbies, the reason why they're pleasurable is because there isn't such a strong sense of I And we have access to both of this, this really constricted, I must do it, it's all up to me. And then just this flow of making things happen or getting lost in just the knitting, whatever it might be. And we can watch during the day how we kind of like go from this really tight sense of I should to some, um, they call it a flow, we might say this like flow state, dancing, singing, knitting, whatever it might be. And throughout the day, we are going back and forth. So when you have this sense of like, I should go meditate, is there a way that you can maybe like shift over to like open up and realize, oh yeah, yes, I'm here, but I'm also connected to all kinds of things. It's not completely up to me. I need to have heard about these teachings or even knew about this idea of meditation to begin with. There is that former self that had the idea it was going to try to sit regularly. 
or maybe there's an app that you listen to or a Dharma talk you listen to or a book, so there's these other people that are supporting you and maybe there's the, you sit on a cushion or you have a favorite chair and maybe there's the manufacturer of that cushion or that chair that also helped make that cushion come to being and you can start to think about like all the different conditions that are coming together to support sitting. And this can be a little bit of a mental list. And this is one way that can help this shift from I should, it's all up to me, to something that's a little bit more relaxed and open and kind of like going with the flow of the process. And sitting is just the next thing that happens. So that's something else that can be a support for practice when there's this resistance. And if it happens that you still don't get to that cushion, but just going through that exercise, enormously valuable, enormously valuable. Just to be remember that we're connected to everything in the sense, maybe I'll, I'll say it this way, we are not as isolated as we often feel. It's not all up to us in the way that we are imagining. And instead we can feel into all the other conditions that need to come together. So something else that might be um, part of the resistance of not finding way to the cushion is there might be the sense of, well, I'm not sure, like, what practice to do? Is this really the best practice? And maybe if I just found the better teacher, it would be easier. What if, if there were just a better practice or, you know, seems like the, those people are doing the Tibetan practice. They look like they're having fun. They have more colorful things. And or maybe I should do that, right? You know, so there's these ideas that, well, maybe if I just had a, the perfect teacher or the perfect practice, then it'll be easier. And I'll wait until they find that. I like the story that Jack Cornfield tells. I think it's uh, yeah, it's very, I think it's very helpful. He talks about this very thing about this idea that we have about our teachers and practices. And he said, uh, some of you may know Jack Cornfield. He's the elder in this whole tradition, and he is one of the primary people who brought it from Asia to America. And so he was a monk in Thailand in the 1970s. And he practiced with Ajahn Chah, who is recognized as one of the greatest Buddhist living masters. I don't know, at the time, right? I've never met Ajahn Chah, of course, but he's highly esteemed. So Jack was a student of Ajahn Chah. And Jack uh, tells the story how uh, he was one of the very few Westerners, you know, were in Thailand in the 70s in these monasteries. He might, Jack might have been the only one. And he and Jack tells a story about where kind of this you know American hubris says to Ajahn Chah, this esteemed meditation master. He says, "You don't seem very enlightened." <laughs> <laughs> I guess because Ajahn Chah would uh, like I don't know what he would do, but and so Ajahn Chah responded, "It was good that he didn't seem enlightened because." then you'd still be looking for enlightenment outside of yourself. 
So Ajahn Chah was pointing to, you're looking for something outside, but it's inside. You're thinking that if you just look at your teacher, that somehow you'll get everything that you need. And Jack tells how this was a really important teaching for him. Because he realized how he had been doing that, right? He had moved to Thailand. Formerly he was in the Peace Corps, if I remember correctly. And that's how he found himself there. But this idea that enlightenment's not out there, it's not really for the perfect teacher or the perfect practice, right? So much of it is us, what we are doing. And that it's helpful for us to see and to recognize that we can take the beautiful teachings that make sense to us, that make our hearts sing, that are really important for us and moving for us, And we are welcome to leave everything else behind. We're not saying this is an all-or-nothing proposition. We're saying take what is helpful and useful, and you can leave everything else behind. It's also helpful to see, and Jack tells this, that, you know, some teachers are, he's, uh, when you write in the history of Buddhism in the West, there certainly have been lots of scandals. You know, some inappropriate behavior. And Jack says, you know, there are definitely some teachers who get really compartmentalized. So they might have some freedom in one area of their life, and they're maybe able to help people, support them with their practice, but maybe they're also harming people in some other areas. So he's saying because people have, teachers have harmed, doesn't mean that they haven't also helped some people. And this was helpful for me to hear because Jack went on to say, he said, this happens in all areas of our, of humanity, that Nobel Prize winning physicists might be completely disconnected from their bodies. May even neglect their bodies. So they have some real um, skill in one area of what it's like to be a human, but not so much skill in another area. In the same way, some Olympic gold medal winning athletes might not have uh, in touch with their emotions and be able to express their emotions. So this idea that teachers, that we are welcome to take what's helpful and to leave behind what's not helpful. And maybe to put aside this idea that we have to wait until we find the perfect practice or the perfect teacher until we really kind of like commit to practice, commit to showing up for ourselves on the cushion. And maybe something else that can be a help for resistance, if we have resistance, is notice if there are any beliefs Sometimes we have these hidden beliefs that uh, we have this idea that there shouldn't be any discomfort in practice. Like, so often we come to practice because we want some ease. We want to relax. We might have this idea that we could bliss out or something like this. And so it feels like if there's any discomfort, whether it's physical discomfort sitting or emotional discomfort, emotions are arising that are difficult or just to see how our mind is 
sometimes is a little bit astounding and uncomfortable to see what our minds do. So just notice if we think that um, we should only be experiencing peace and ease all the time. It wouldn't be surprising if we had that idea because certainly society leads us to think that anything that is uncomfortable is a mistake and something has gone horribly wrong and we have to blame somebody. This is kind of like the message that we get. But have you noticed? Pain is part of human life. Pleasure is part of human life too. It's inescapable. And so there's this way in which this kind of message, it should all just be happiness and rainbows and unicorns kind of idea that, I mean, I'm saying that it's kind of silly and exaggerated, but there might be these underlying beliefs that it, we can't do anything except really pleasant experiences on meditation. And there's no value in being with some of the difficulties When I say that out loud, I think all of us recognize that there are difficulties, but there might be these, like, I keep on using this word, hidden beliefs. So, notice, maybe I'll say one more thing about this. That because, if having this idea that there shouldn't be any discomfort puts us in contention with reality, because there is discomfort being a human being. Maybe there's a little bit of discomfort in the way you're sitting right now. But part of the resistance that we might have to get into the cushion is because we're anticipating it's going to be uncomfortable. And it may be. But is there a way that we can say, well, okay, that's just the way it's going to be today maybe increase our capacity to tolerate some discomfort. And then maybe the last thing that I'll say, I have a, I have a, I'm trying to decide here which, what la, what's the last thing that I'll say here. Here's what I'll say. If you have resistance of getting to the cushion or meditating, or even if you are meditating and you're in a meditation posture, but your mind is doing anything except uh, meditating. Do another type of meditation practice. Do walking meditation. Walking meditation can be fantastic. You can even do this in the hallway in your house. I do this sometimes. I go like from the kitchen to the bedroom to the kitchen to the bedroom. <laughs> I don't know, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of nice, actually. Do some loving-kindness practice while driving. Do some loving-kindness practice while you go for a hike for all the beings that you're seeing there. Because, remember, the purpose of meditation is to transform our minds, help us see clearly And these other practices support that too. But what can happen is if we are resisting going to the cushion and then we don't go to the cushion, then this whole story gets created like, oh, I haven't done it for four days and what's the use? I shouldn't do it again or something like this. But 
that's not helpful, but just do what you can. Okay, I'm going to be mindful while I'm washing the dishes after dinner. Okay, I'm going to be mindful while I'm brushing my teeth. Whatever it might be. So just to do another practice, and maybe you do that other practice for a while, days, weeks, whatever it is, and but it might be a bridge to get back to the cushion. Because if we have this all or nothing idea, then it just starts to get harder and harder to get back to the cushion. But instead, if we have this idea that, well, there's lots of different ways of practicing. And I'll say a little bit about a loving kindness practice. Because I did a whole series, some of you may know that I was teaching what we call happy hour twice a week for years I did this and I just ended this week actually but I did um, for a couple months this on working with the inner critic on how to do this and it turned out to be really impactful and helpful for a lot of people or so they tell me right (laughs) so you know I only hear the nice things there might be things out there that people like that's terrible I wish Diana would stop but you know they don't tell me that so I don't want to make it seem like everybody loved it. But there's a way in which we can do some practice specific to work with the inner critic. And maybe I'll talk some more about this in a a later talk, but I'll just introduce the idea. Is first, it's kind of like just soften the heart and mind and to do some loving-kindness practice where it's the absolute easiest. This is critical. Easy, easy, easy. For some people, this is imaginary kittens, puppies, and babies. Because, right, we don't have, there's, you know, it's imaginary, right? So it's easy to, these cute things, whatever it might be for all of you. Meditation masters, some very esteemed meditation masters, Ajahn Brahm, he describes, he uses a kitten, an imaginary kitten for this. So to spend some time with this, softening the heart, this could be 10, 15 minutes, just imagining the lovable being and doing some loving kindness practice with them. And then after you've done that some time and you feel like there's a, a little bit of softening or opening then to bring to mind a minor difficulty that's happening in your life a minor difficulty on a scale of 1 to 10 a 2 or a 3 just some little minor irritation because we don't want to Yeah, I'll just say we're going to start where it's easy and if we start where it's hard, then it's just too hard and we, doesn't, we don't do it. Start where it's easy. Bring to a, a, um, a minor difficulty. And that's often where the inner critic starts to arise. This, when I talked about this idea that we feel like we should never have any pain or difficulties, when things are a little bit difficult, there's often this little voice like, oh, you should have done this or yeah, you're not so good at this. And when are you going to get it together? Or, you know, something like this. So in the same way that we would do loving kindness practice, where we 
would repeat phrases. Here's a f- some phrases we can use. May this difficulty be held with kindness and ease. Shifting the relationship again. May this difficulty be held with kindness and ease. I'm doing the best I can right now. I'm doing the best I can right now. Just to like say this like to oneself. We are at that moment. We're doing what we can. Or I'm in the process of learning new ways and this takes time. I'm in the process of learning new ways and this takes time. Can, can you feel like there's a little bit more space there and the kind of like the inner critic gets quiet and you can feel like there was a shift in relationship? And sometimes it might be helpful to kind of like speak directly to this inner critic, this voice inside of ourselves that's putting us down. Speak directly to it and say, I know you're trying to help, but that's not helpful. I know you're trying to help, but that's not helpful. So these are some different ways we can work with resistance to get into the cushion. We can just turn it into practice. We can investigate, well, like, what it, is there something I'm trying to avoid or that I don't want to see right now? That's a form of practice. We can notice if there are any beliefs that we have that there shouldn't be any discomfort. That's part of practice to help us understand ourselves better. We can make some kind-hearted adjustments, maybe doing a little bit of this practice for the inner critic. Maybe that's your practice. No, you're not going to do mindfulness then. You're just going to do some of these kind-hearted adjustments, work with uh, this inner critic practice, or maybe have some compassion, recognizing the humanity that it's not so easy to do new habits or to be with difficulties. And then also to notice this sense of I. We have this sense of like, it's up to me, I need to do it. It's really tight. Is there a way that we can soften and move to where it's a little more looser and softer? And part of the way to do that is to recognize that so many conditions have to come together and are coming together. So I offer this as a way of what there's resistance to practice, of how to work with it or just to turn the resistance itself into practice without actually having to get to the cushion. And I didn't leave a lot of time for questions, but maybe there's time for one or so. I'm sorry about this, but I wanted to... Hi, thank you. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly what my question was. I know I remember the first half, which is um, when you spoke about the voice of I should, it was kind of, you described that it's kind of like this me versus everything. Could I hear you 
re-articulate that a bit? It really resonated with me, but I'd like to just sort of hear it again. Yeah, it shows up often as me against the world, this idea, or kind of like being isolated. There's also the, it creates the conditions for so many things get glommed on top of that. I don't know if this is what you're talking about. I was talking, it's, um, yeah, so what, what, that's, what, what are my notes do I have? Oh, it's not only me against the world, but also everything is up to me. Like, mm. I have to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, so I, and so then I understand this idea of being able to practice with this voice, identifying where there's resistance and perhaps our relationship to this voice being a form of practice. Um, how do we how do we evaluate the part of the voice that's 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 holds some truth or some value or some realness like I should do my taxes when they're due you know um, but maybe there's resistance to that but I actually should do my taxes you know how do we how do we balance um, this like opening to it but also listening to what it has to say yeah I guess. Yeah. So this is the part of the art of practice is can we do our taxes with ease? Mm-hmm. Right? right? So and this is part of the practice is to really find okay, can we find ease when things are uncomfortable? Cuz if we're always finding wanting them to be easeful, right? We're going to have some resistance and not want to do them. Maybe we don't want to do our taxes, but is there a way that um we can open up to them? So instead of there's, I have to do the taxes. There's just, it's kind of a subtle thing in language, but to kind of say, um, taxes are being done. Mm. Sure. Okay. I like that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay. So we're at the top of the hour. So I thank you all for your attention. And if you'd like, you're welcome to come up and talk to me. But otherwise, wish you a wonderful evening. And I'm leaving this weekend for a month-long retreat, so I won't be here for the next few weeks. I'll be happily... I don't know if I'll be happy, right? We never know what happens on retreats, right? There's no guarantees. (laughs) But um, I'll look forward to coming back in uh, March. So thank you.